0: Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is May 30th, 2019, and this is episode 140, is BC Politics Podcast. Tell us what you think of the show by leaving us a review or get at us on social media. Most importantly, help us build the show by throwing us a couple bucks at patreon.com slash politicoast. I'm Scott boom I'm Ian Bushfield.
1: And I'm Shannon Waters.
0: Welcome back once more. We need you today, Shannon, because there's a ton to talk about.
1: Yes, there is. As is becoming a bit of a refrain, it is never a dull moment in BC
2: politics. <laughs>
0: So in addition to the chaos of the last 24 hours in the legislature, we're going to be talking about the B.C. Court of Appeals ruling that feels like a lifetime ago, even though it was just last week, Jody Wilson-Raybould's decision to go as an independent, and plenty more. Politicoast is, of course, in partnership with Shannon Waters' own B.C. Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to B.C. politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the B.C. legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate your free two-week trial of the newsletter go to British Columbia Today.ca. and you'll get one more week of bc today before shannon gets a well-needed break <laughs> let's jump into the first segment hard drives all over the legislature what happened yesterday shannon as far as i can tell after two legislative staff announced their retirement randy ennis the acting sergeant at arms and ron huck a security operations commander things started going off the rails
1: the legislature spending scandal had kind of been put to bed with former um, Canadian Supreme Court Justice Beverly McLaughlin's report about the allegations against now-retired clerk Craig James and still-suspended sergeant-at-arms Gary Lenz. And then last night, we had this interesting little installment. Rob and Va- Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun were still in the building at the time, and Rob wrote a story on it. Basically, what we found out today is that Liberal Party leader Andrew Wilkinson says he saw the Speaker, Daryl Plekis, along with his right-hand man, Alan Mullen, and another unknown individual leaving a legislature office with a hard drive that they had taken from this office. Later, the acting clerk, Kate Ryan Lloyd, was seen visibly upset leaving Plekis' office after some kind of conversation, I believe, was the situation. Anyways, so today, we have a conversation with the Liberals about their concerns about the Speaker. They said that... You know, they don't think that Plekis should be going in and pulling people's hard drives. They don't know what he's doing with them, why he would be, you know, bringing the acting clerk to tears, all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's been another, like, accusations and allegations flying back and forth from all kinds of parties. Plekus says that all he's trying to do is make sure that the legislature's data is secure. And that if there is any kind of investigation that ends up coming to the legislature to look into, you know, whether it's related to the spending scandal or something completely different. He wants to make sure that any and all information is available to any investigators who might be coming forward. Now, the weird thing there is that we were told by IT services at the legislature. Um, my colleague, McLean Kay, contacted them to ask the policies were about backing up you know, all of these hard drives and computer drives that are at the legislature. And they say they do that. It's done on like a daily basis and the information is contained. So what Plekus is doing, we're not entirely sure. The liberals are very concerned about it. Both liberal House leader Mary Polak and Andrew Wilkinson told reporters today that they removed sensitive documents from their offices and from the legislative precinct last night after learning what Plekis was up to because they weren't sure if he was just going to show up in like the opposition leader's offices and, you know, start kind of snooping around. They also said that the caucus met outside of the state. They didn't hold their meeting in the legislature building because they were kind of, they have privacy concerns about what the speaker is up to. The Speaker says he's doing nothing wrong. He's just trying to protect, you know, protect this data and make sure that it's all available. And the government also says that they're not worried. Senior Horgan said he's completely confident in Plekis. He has no plans to try and remove him or anything along those lines. So a lot of drama and then kind of towards the end of the day, not a whole lot to show for it, really.
2: So I gather a Liberal staffer spent the night standing guard at their uh, office, is that correct?
1: We're told that this is true, um, that there was a senior Liberal staffer who stayed in the building at least into the early hours of this morning to make sure that nobody was wandering around in, uh, in their offices.
0: And so the other thing that I guess happened last night is at some point there was this emergency meeting of the House leaders where... Mary Polak, Mike Farnworth, and Sonia Firstenauer meeting with, I take it, Plekis was in the room as well. And they were talking about all these different things related to the spending scandal. And Mary Polak released 16 pages of notes from that meeting today, in which she says Plekis accused Bev McLaughlin's report of being pathetic and called her stupid.
1: Yeah, so the timeline is a little bit muddled here. There's been some suggestion that some people, uh, possibly Polak, became aware sometime yesterday afternoon um, that Placas and Mullen were going into people's offices and getting, you know, getting these hard drives to copy is, is what we're told was being done. The meeting was between Polak, first to now, and uh, NDP MLA Gary Begg, who was standing in for Mike Farnworth as Farnworth was in estimates for his ministry. Beg is the party's whip. He's also a member of the Legislative Assembly Management Committee, so he effectively stood in for Barnworth. And Polak told us that the point of that meeting was basically to talk to Plekis and sort of make clear that regardless of his intent and, and sort of what he was trying to do in copying these hard drives, the way he was going about it was... Like not very good, and he was upsetting people, and that maybe he should try not to do that. She said he was not receptive at all, basically. She described him as being very erratic, very aggressive, lots of desk pounding, and said that he sort of rejected and rebuffed efforts to sort of calm him down, and that he seems to feel that McLaughlin's report kind of vilifies him in a way, and and is like a personal insult against him. But it also seems to have sort of emboldened him as to his role and his authority in the legislature. He now seems to think that he doesn't need to report to Lamsey, the Legislative Assembly Management Committee. He doesn't need to ask their permission about anything that he's doing, that he is kind of this independent entity in the House and can do as he pleases.
0: So did either First Now or the NDP MLA back up either Polak's notes? Or I know Plekis initially denied some of these comments before Polak released her detailed notes. When I take it, he just went quieter.
1: Yes, we didn't speak to him in the afternoon. The Liberals held a briefing around two o'clock, I think it was, for media. And that's when we got the notes um, and the chance to interview them. Gary Beg was not available today, was not made available today to comment. We did scrum Premier Horgan for his final media availability of the session, and he said he's confident in the speaker, but didn't really address the allegations specifically. The scrum was also before we actually spoke to the Liberals. Sonia Furstenau refused to talk about the meeting or the notes. She said she found Polak's decision to release the notes disappointing, and she thought it kind of worked against what Lampsey has been trying to do and what the House leaders have been trying to do in working together to address sort of all of the fallout, um, these allegations that Plekis has made and then and in McLaughlin's investigation. She and Green Party leader Andrew Weaver both said they still have faith in, and confidence in Plekis as the speaker. So it doesn't seem like he's going to be going anywhere.
2: So throughout this whole affair, going back to when Craig James and Gary Lenz were marched out of the legislature, Daryl Plekis's unorthodox, I guess is one way to say it, uh, approach to this as kind of being the main weakness of his. Does this further undermine that?
1: I definitely don't think it looks good. Plekis hasn't really made the case at this point for why he needs to be doing what he's doing. Pollack said that in the meeting, he alleged that there were four instances where McLaughlin was looking for information or there was information that was felt to be relevant to her investigation and it couldn't be found. Nobody could find it. But she said his explanations were kind of very convoluted and she didn't give us many details. One of the things that really struck me about McLaughlin's report was the fact that she said that Plekis essentially neglected his responsibility to be a manager and administrator in the legislature to play detective. And that he sort of approached his investigation in a way that suggested, you know, like a police investigation, a criminal investigation, when he should have been looking at sort of administrative and managerial issues, which were within his purview. And he seems to still be doing that. He said that he's not conducting any investigations right now. This is just about data security and, you know, management and legislature, but it's still like the optics on it just aren't great. And the fact that there is this tension and potentially bad feeling between him and the current acting clerk is you know,
2: not a great situation. Yeah, removing hard drives after hours definitely seems more like police work than in administration.
0: Well, I could almost see it as a, all right, I need to be the boss here, and the boss will deal with this right now, right here, and he's just taking that in a very direct way in his mind. He's sort of more Michael Scott approach to management where you can't always predict what's going to happen, <laughs> but it's right. definitely... Not typical.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he said that the reason they were being removed at night or like regarding what Wilkinson had said he saw that it was being done so as not to disrupt the working day so that legislature staff, you know, wouldn't be put out at all by having their hard drives picked up or whatever. But again... There was sort of some implication that the Liberals at some point got wind of this whole thing in the afternoon or earlier in the evening rather than later.
0: I don't know if we'll ever figure out exactly the timeline on what this happened, because the sensible way, if you're worried about backups, would be to talk to the IT department and make sure everything gets backed up. Let's turn over to the Liberals, though, because their animosity to Plekis seems to be there kind of weakness on credibility on this. Now, that's not to excuse any of Plekis's behavior, but the liberals, I think, are worth some extra scrutiny today because they did a number of other things. At one point, Andrew Wilkinson was offering up a liberal MLA to be speaker if they could get Plekis out.
1: Yeah, so this was an interesting one because, as many of your listeners probably know, there was a liberal speaker in June Steve Thompson was appointed to the role. I believe he served about six days before deciding to step down, which he didn't actually have to do. They could have left him in the chair and let the NDP government move in and go from there, but they didn't want to do that. So Thompson stepped down and now we have we have Plekis and there's been all of the fallout around that. One of the toughest things about this story is parsing the politics because... Everybody in this story has history. They have interests that they're looking to. There are axes to be ground. And so sorting through all of these different assertions that are being made and trying to figure out how much weight to give them based on, you know, how credible you think the person saying it is and their relation to the person that they're saying it about is just exhausting.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like the liberals overplayed their hand back when Plekis first became Speaker by going so hard against him that they basically shot any credibility they have. And now on the flip side, because they've basically polarized Plekis so much, the NDP can't do anything about it without giving the Liberals a win. And,
1: yeah, like Pretty much exactly. And I feel like there's becoming like this story is becoming kind of cyclical because often what happens is the liberal raise concerns about something Plekis is doing or his behavior or whatever. And then we all go crazy and like there's a lot of back and forth and we're trying to get the speaker in the hallway and we talk to the government and see if they share the concerns and they say no. And then at the end of the day, like nothing changes. (laughs) The liberals did say that should the NDP government be interested in removing PLECAS? which by the way nobody knows how you do that how you move a speaker who doesn't want to be removed there was a lot of discussion about that today and I did not come away with any feeling that I know how
2: you would do that because it's not in the standard orders right that that's the main issue well basically like
1: it's just never happened before like speakers come in they serve their time and they decide for whatever reason to leave the chair so it just doesn't get done. So the liberals have kind of said, well if we can figure out a way if the government wants to get rid of plecus 2 because the issue given the margins in the house is that nobody really wants to put, put up a speaker because it tends to it reduces your vote count, right? You have somebody sitting in the chair so they never vote unless there's a tie. The liberals said they hadn't selected a specific speaker but they would be willing to offer someone to sit as speaker until at least the spring. So through the fall session and then they could revisit the issue in the spring and figure out if that individual is going to stay in the chair or whatever. The NDP government is very clearly not interested in this at all. We were talking to Horgan about it uh, this afternoon. And he said, Daryl Plekis is the speaker of the legislature. And he will be so until such time as he decides not to be. So if the liberals were hoping to get a little support on this, they must be disappointed because <laughs> that's not what they got.
0: Well, and we now have this strange situation for i think almost any westminster parliament that i'm aware of i don't know all of them but where you have almost half of the legislature you know the elected officials who've essentially said we have no confidence in the speaker in fact they read it into the hansard by taking the last hours of the day to read the exact same point of privilege one after another as they vacated the legislature
1: Yeah, so this was highly unusual and quite dramatic and a weird way to end the session. Every single... I'm pretty sure it was every single... It seemed like every single liberal MLA stood up and read this point of personal privilege under one of the standing orders. I think it was 26?
0: 26, yeah, I have it here.
1: Basically saying that they have concerns about what the speaker has been doing and they want to distance themselves from him and that they are making that official by reading it into the record so,
2: so is this going to change anything like i feel the liberals dislike of plekis is pretty much priced in at this point but this also does seem to be an escalation so is it going to have
0: an impact like do they just not show up in october when it returns
1: uh, <laughs> they I just have boycott
0: no the legislature. I...
1: I have a feeling it's, it's just supposed to ramp up the pressure. Like it's an official declaration that will now be in the record that the liberals do not have confidence in Plekis. They have concerns about the way he's conducting himself. They have concerns about the way those actions impact the legislature. Um, the really surreal thing about the whole bit was that Plekis had to call on every single one of them to stand up and say this about him like every single time he had to call on the member from such and such a riding, and then they would make this statement and then he would have to call the next one uh it was bizarre
0: yeah i watched a little bit of the latter half i guess a lot of the fireworks were in the first half where he actually tried to push back and tried to rule against some of them or carol james i guess tried to intervene in his defense at one point but then by the end everyone was just resigned to well this is happening
1: yeah, and I believe at one point they did actually have a bill go through. I don't know if there was a vote on it or it was just read or something. But yeah, there there were a couple of interruptions early on, and then they just kind of settled in and, and
0: read you know, their little blurbs. It was so strange. Yep. In terms of the politics for this, the Liberals definitely need something to kick them into gear. Our friend Mario over at Research Co. put out a poll earlier this week that showed the NDPs still floating around 39%, where they seem to always be. The Liberals are down, though, to 30, the Greens are up to 21, and the BC Conservatives are somehow sitting at 9%, because I guess whenever you put them on a poll, people will say, yeah, I would vote for that, even though I have no clue who that is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, somebody always says that they're going to vote for the Conservatives. Yeah, I... They need some momentum. This is actually something Horgan kind of suggested that maybe, you know, making such a fuss about Plecas was kind of like an attempt to draw attention to the Liberals, you know, to show that they're doing something in the legislature. He kind of suggested that they have struggled to find their feet in opposition after so long in government. There is a legislative Assembly Management Committee meeting scheduled for next week. So that is going to be interesting. They still have some work to do to address the issues that came up in the Speaker's previous reports and from the former Chief Justice's report as well. There's a workplace review that is supposed to happen. There are There's an audit going on and some other work on that front. So that'll be probably an interesting meeting to watch. Although if they end up going in camera to talk about HR issues as they are prone to do, there won't really be much that's accessible to the public.
0: Well, I think that about ties off as much as we can say or know about this latest <laughs> episode in this.
1: Unfortunately, there's like, there's not a resolution here and it's just going to keep rolling. Like this story is probably still going to be a thing when we go back in October. Um, and, you know, maybe something will change. Maybe Plekis will get fed up with it all and just decide he's going to walk away from the whole mess. I do not think that's likely given the way he talks about you know, his role in sort of cleaning up the legislature.
2: Yeah. I think he's put his reputation kind of down on this one pretty hard. He wants to see it- well, his this legacy. Is a,
1: this is something that Polak also alleges in her notes that, you know, when he was told that his report had, you know, had made a difference that there were these changes that are going to be made. And, you know, the clerk is now gone because he was found to have committed employee misconduct. Polak, says that Pleka said to her, well, that's not how the media sees it. And also said that he refuses to leave the legislature under a cloud, that he will clear his name uh, and show himself to be vindicated before he leaves the house.
0: Well, I guess we'll leave it there (laughs) under a cloud and move on.
2: (laughs) Moving on to segment two, Fisher Price tools. Oh
0: man. Ian came up with that one. Rachel Notley came up with oh, that one. Did he? Oh,
2: okay. Yeah,
1: Rachel Notley said these toolbox turned out to be more Fisher-Price oh, than... Oh, yeah, DG. right.
0: <laughs> Last Friday, the BC Court of Appeal returned the decision on the reference question the government of BC had thrown at it.
2: The, the, the reference question on could they use, quote, every tool in the toolbox? Well, or oh, that's what their campaign promises. Yeah. And this was that put into action or attempted to be.
0: Yeah, the question, I had to go back and pull them up. Number two and three don't actually matter. But the first one is, is it within the legislative authority of the legislature of British Columbia to enact legislation substantially in the form set out in the attachment? And that's legislation that basically would enable BC under its environmental protection purposes to restrict the import of dangerous goods, namely heavy oil. Now, the court turned around and said, this is clearly about Trans Mountain Pipeline. That's a federal project it's an interprovincial project you can't regulate that that's the NEB's job go away it was a very complicated decision but it boils down to that
2: and and like we said the other two just they didn't even bother asking or answering because the first one mooted them out
1: yeah they didn't need to go into the second questions if the answer to the first question was just no because the other two questions were predicated on the previous question and now it's going to go to the supreme court yay so we'll get to talk about it again in i don't even know how long
0: yeah david eby i guess announced almost right away he would appeal it to the supreme court of canada everyone was kind of like can they do that it was a 5-0 decision does the supreme court of canada have to hear that and then someone dug up their copy of is it the supreme court act or the constitution act one of them includes i'm not sure but
2: i don't think it's the supreme court act yeah yeah I, I don't think how many judges voted a particular way governs whether or not it's appealable. I mean, it just, there's a split, like, it, you know, maybe like a little persuasive, but really the Supreme court just gets to decide unless it's splitly ri- written into law. Yes. You get an appeal.
1: And the other thing here was that the province tried to get the reference question into the Supreme court on the first go. They asked the federal government, this it's within your authority to have this case, heard in the Supreme Court of Canada so that we can all get an immediate resolution to it, because once you're in the Supreme Court, there's nowhere else to go. Ottawa said, no, we don't want to do that. So BC took it to its Court of Appeal, which is the highest court the province had access to, didn't get the answer that they were looking for. So now they're going to try it again uh, in the Supreme Court of Canada.
0: And I think a lot of people see the Supreme Court as being unlikely to overturn the Court of Appeal. There was a lot of discussion on Twitter about The number of times the Supreme Court of Canada has actually overturned the BC Court of Appeal, and it's almost a source of pride or embarrassment in the legal community here that the Supreme Court really likes to go the other way from our provincial really likes is maybe a bit of an overstatement. It does it more common than other provinces, I think. We could pull that apart, but the one weak spot I think in this judgment is it does by the argument that this is this bill, this draft was entirely about TMX.
2: Well, when when you have the premier saying as part of his campaign, yes, we'll do this to block TMS, it's kind of hard not to conclude that, yes, this is about TMS.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that, that kind of came through in the court's decision for sure. Like the province had kind of said, this is about our responsibility to the environment, protecting our citizens and our economy. It's not just this project. And the justices kind of looked at the question and they were like, but it's obviously about this project. (laughs) So, and that's not, you know, not something that is within the province's jurisdiction to block. So, you know, I think Rachel Notley's comment about BC's toolbox, you know, being somewhat flimsy and running out of tools is, is fairly accurate. Uh, I give her bonus points for being extremely pithy, but I think we are, you know, going to go to the Supreme Court, we'll hear the arguments again, and we'll see if there ends up being a different result.
0: Yeah. The other thing that came up is I saw a lot of people trying to poke David Eby or John Horgan about what other tools are there in the toolbox. And I think they were both being really cagey. But I came across one comment from Peter McCartney, who's a climate campaigner with Wilderness Committee, and he told the Vancouver Sun that there's plenty BC could do to halt or delay it, like, you know, adding additional certificates, delaying permits, doing extra health and safety reviews. I mean, at some point, it's going to look obviously obstructionist.
2: Well, that's kind of now, but um...
1: I mean, it is one of the things where you kind of wonder if the province, you know, if they really are that opposed to this project, if they might be tempted. I mean, both Rachel Notley and Jason Kenney have been accusing BC of obstructing this project for as long as I've been reporting in the legislature anyway, since this government came into power. And the premier has pointed out multiple times, he's like, we're not denying permits on this. As Trans Mountain applies, we are granting the permit. You know, there are court actions against this. There are people protesting against it. We ourselves are not holding up the project, not obstructing the project. So if they've been accused of this all over the place, you know, maybe they do just go that route. I kind of I have difficulty believing they will, though. More likely, I think, would be to rely on, I don't know if there are further First Nations challenges that could go through on it. Opposition from Nation groups still exists. There are First Nations who support and, and want the pipeline. There are others, namely the Tsleil-Waututh, which are, have traditional territory where the pipeline ends, who have fought it sort of tooth and nail. So to me, that seems like a more likely corner for the province to rely on. But I think at this point, it's kind of anybody's gap.
0: Yeah, and the NEB still has to come back with its final decision, which I don't think anyone is expecting them to turn the pipeline down at this point.
1: No, I don't think so. That decision is supposed to come down on June 18th. It has been pushed back previously, though, so I I guess there's a possibility that happens again, but... Yeah, right now we're waiting until June 18th and that should be when the NEB's decision is rendered and it's either green light go or red light no.
2: Yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see for that. But for the people who are looking to oppose this pipeline, might need to wait for the federal election to really have their say because it's probably not going to come from the province.
0: Well, and even there you only have the NDP and Greens officially against the pipeline.
2: It should be tough, yeah.
0: Probably going through, just very, very slowly.
2: Yeah, and even the uh, try and stall it out so they eventually give up probably not going to happen when it's now federally owned, and the budget constraints of actually having to turn a profit aren't really there.
0: Well, let's move on to a third and final segment, Independent Women, (laughs) on Monday... Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott had a simultaneous press conference, which generated a lot of buzz over the weekend as everyone was like, all right, what are they going to announce? They talked about their political future. And on Monday morning, they both get up wearing white symbolically to represent how they are beyond any party colors. And they announced that they are running as independents in the next federal election.
2: So before this, the big speculation was, Were they going to become Green Party members?
0: Which is what Elizabeth May was basically telling everyone, too. Yeah,
2: she was trying to telegraph it for, like,
0: weeks. And they didn't, which was actually rather surprising, because you think Elizabeth May would have tempered expectations at all in advance of this or after. Well,
2: Elizabeth May's never been one for the 5D chess political strategy type things. So, I don't know, would she have tampered down speculation if it was actually going to be going through or even if there's a question she she might have been trying to put it out in public to try and put pressure on them to join.
0: Yeah. I can see that. Apparently her desire to have these two join the party was so great that in her very first conversation with both of them about joining the Greens, she said, "Hey, if you want to be leader of the Greens, I'll get out of your way." Which is an interesting card to open with. Like, I don't know of any political party that's ever offered a floor crosser the party. <laughs>
1: Uh, it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big enticement as if you want to lead what is currently a very small federal caucus.
0: Well, you would be increasing it from two MPs to three or four. So 50 to 100 yeah. percent growth. <laughs> May's comments got more confusing through the week as someone, I think it was Susan Delacour, tweeted that she thinks May replied to one question that, yes, the Greens will run candidates against both of these women, but they just won't try very hard.
1: Yeah, candidates that aren't, like, highly motivated to win or something like that, which...
2: Gotta feel bad for those candidates. Like, basically being told via national television that, no, the leader's not actually going to be supporting you very much.
1: Yeah, do not expect a lot of support from the federal party leader. But the other thing, and I mean, you know, this just plays to my sensibilities deeply, was somebody saying... Who wants to bet that those candidates do not end up being white guys because parties are fairly well known for tending to throw women and minority candidates into ridings that they're not particularly interested or hopeful of winning?
0: It is a way to pad those numbers so you can say, oh, we're running a gender diverse slate, 50-50%. And also we have all these people of color running in all these different constituencies. Now, sometimes things go the right way and you know all the paper candidates the NDP was running in Quebec get elected somehow and then you Mm -hmm. have a really diverse and unique set of people but other times your leader comes out and says in advance that they're not going to support you and we all know political parties don't support campaigns equally there are winnable ridings and there are we just need a face
2: yeah but this gets more complicated in the fact that if you buy the green surge idea that at least one of these is a potentially winnable riding and would have almost certainly been a winnable riding with an incumbent with good name recognition and who's well regarded by the public but now it gets more tricky because if you are going to pick up seats as the dream party is probably going to be southwest bc and maybe vancouver Dranville.
0: which also raises the question now for phil pot and wilson raybold is do they stand a chance as independents? Now, Philpott's in a very tough riding because that was one the Conservatives were already eyeing to steal. And now Philpott's going to be running against probably a strong Conservative candidate, a Liberal candidate who's running out of spite, or it seems... Yeah,
2: and there'll be uh, spite resources put in there to keep her from winning by the Liberals.
0: And Jody Wilson-Raybould might have a little bit more of a chance because BC is very independent-minded in general... She's got the better name recognition and is po- fairly popular locally, as far as I can tell.
2: Yeah, but popular in- uh, independents don't necessarily win.
0: And even if she does, she still sits in the back corner of the house because our system doesn't do much for independents despite what their hope is. I think right now we're maybe not at a record number of independents, but we have seven or eight in total, depending whether you count the Greens and Maxime. I guess actually if you count the Block, who have ten MPs, which is not enough to form a party. Well, they officially could get...
2: recognized party, but they're, they're a party. Yeah.
0: Well, they could all get together with some of the other independents and just make an independence group movement, which is actually what it sounded like Wilson-Raybould and Philpott wanted to get going.
2: Yeah, that's that kind of the more interesting thing here is they were talking like a national campaign talks rather than a local campaign, particularly um, Wilson-Raybould.
0: Well, and I think someone even asked Selena Caesar-Shavanez, who also left the Liberal caucus earlier this year what her thoughts are and it sounds like she had changed from i probably won't run again to maybe i'll run as an independent if i can be on this indie slate and that would be kind of cool but overall i think this is just a big loss for elizabeth may and the greens they were doing quite well on the national media scene lots of momentum and now suddenly it blew up in their face.
2: Yeah, the, the fact that they were even being talked about as like the the leading choice for where these two women would go is a big change from what would have happened like five or ten years ago and it showed they had grown. Now, part of it was Elizabeth May was actively pumping that narrative, but at the same time, it, it does signal that the Greens are being taken more seriously as a party, and it kind of makes you wonder why this didn't work, because it was an obvious win-win. The Greens get Two well-respected candidates who are now incumbents, help energize them, boost their chances of holding those ridings uh, in the fall and maybe picking up some more. And at, on the flip side, it's a lot easier to get elected as a member of a party, particularly when there's going to be resources and you can tap into that brand and everything. So it really seems to be a question of why they couldn't make it work when there was benefits for both.
0: Maybe Elizabeth May just came on way too strong. Like when you start your negotiations with all of your cards, it goes, you want this a little too much. Like everyone knows those relationship stories of someone who's a little too obsessed and comes on way too hot and strong. You, those don't last. You kind of walk away from that scared. So maybe she scared them off. I think they both sort of talked about how they did have a lot of alignment in ideas, but it, neither of them were very happy with partisanship at in general or at all and they yeah, which, wanted which is
2: kind of the greens thing so why that was the bridge too far to join the green party just raises more questions
0: maybe they get reelected and a couple other independents get elected across the country and we're in a minority situation where suddenly every vote hinges on them and we have some radical reforms to the legislature where independents get an actual voice and that's maybe best case scenario
2: That would be the very best case scenario. That's probably not going to happen.
1: Such cynicism.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You rarely lose money betting against independents in the Canadian system.
0: Maybe one of them becomes Speaker and then we have an independent (laughs) Speaker scandal at the federal level.
1: Honestly, I would love to see some more independent representatives in the House. I'm not a big fan of party politics. I get frustrated with like, I don't even know that votes are necessarily really whipped in the House. Like, MLAs just, they're expected to vote the way that their party votes. And I don't think that's productive. And I don't think it represents people, the interests of the people who voted these people into power, if they are always going to have to toe the party line regardless.
2: Moving on to quick takes. Uh, this past week, In addition to the drama we talked about earlier, there's been a barrage of bills from the B.C. Liberals.
1: I think we had 24 private members bills introduced in the House session. So almost as much legislation as came in from the government. They had 32 bills, which is really 31 bills because an act to ensure the supremacy of Parliament is just like procedural and never goes anywhere.
0: So was there an official strategy from the B.C. Liberals for dropping this all at the end of the session when it was obviously Not going to go anywhere. Like private members' bills have almost never gone anywhere, and we could talk about the two, one or two that have. But dropping all of this in the last week is clearly not a sincere effort to bring new laws about.
1: I mean, to be fair, there won't be, or there likely won't be, a perogman in the fall. So, and the government has a bill left on the order paper as well this session. So there is potential that bills could get picked up in the fall. I had a conversation session ender with Wilkinson the other day, and he actually teased me for being a cynic because I said to him, like, you and I both know private members bills go exactly nowhere, um, unless you happen to be Andrew Weaver, who's having a lot of luck lately. So Wilkinson said that the liberals are concerned about foreign interference in our elections. He singled out the Dogwood Initiative as having... Like very obviously received foreign funding for a billboard that I believe was put up in Wilkinson's writing during the 2017 election. I queried Elections BC to say, you know, have you been investigating stuff like this? Are there concerns brought to you? Have you levied any fines in connection with the 2017 election? And they basically said that there were no contraventions of the Elections Act that they are aware of at all. Wilkinson is basically saying that the Elections Act isn't enough to keep foreign interference out of BC elections, even though it does bar 3rd party sponsors from accepting donations from anyone who's not a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident. I was kind of struck by the timing because we were just coming off the BC Chamber of Commerce annual general meeting where both Rex Murphy and Vivian Krauss, who is a researcher who is drawing attention to sort of foreign investment in Campaigns that are targeting Alberta's oil sands or have been targeting Alberta's oil sands. They both spoke at this chamber of AGM. Murphy wondered why Russia and China are not seeing a lot of protesting of environmental issues, which <laughs> makes.
2: Well, we, we know what happens when people protest Putin. Like, I, I think exactly. that answers itself.
1: You understand how authoritarian regimes work, and are you suggesting that Canada should become an authoritarian regime in order to ensure that our natural resource industry is doing really well? Like, maybe think that one through a little more. Anyway, so I'm kind of wondering if maybe the liberals took a bit of inspiration from that. Legislation doesn't tend to get crafted that quickly, but I'm kind of wondering if maybe it like put a bee in Wilkinson's bonnet about, you know, sort of making it official in bill form that they have concerns about this issue
0: well and it's something that jason kenny has talked about and i think andrew shear is talking about and probably doug ford so it's a new conservative it, it's, it's resistance an idea that's been
2: around for longer than this bill has
0: but coupled with the foreign election interference bill there's also stuff on adult adoption homeowner protection around cannabis being grow ups i guess preserving brunswick point uh waterfowl habitat uh some paying contractors in reasonable times which seem like a lot of these don't seem like malicious bills and then there's the weird doug ford style stickers telling you how much tax you pay on gas pumps bill which is funny
2: we already have those like i see them but the few times i fill up that might
0: be a metro van thing okay only and maybe yeah, they
1: want so all gas stations in the province would have to put all of the local provincial and federal taxes that are applied to a liter of gasoline on every single pump so not not quite what Doug Ford is doing because he's requiring gas stations to denounce the carbon tax which seems like a fairly blatant form of compelled speech this would be presenting a suit you know what I assume would be factual information about the taxes that go into gas Again, still not going to go anywhere. There's also the Equal Pay Reporting Act, which would see companies required to report what they pay their male and female employees and their benefits in order to ensure transparency around who's getting paid and essentially provide an opportunity to shame or put pressure on companies that pay women less. Again, the government has signaled that it has no interest in pursuing this act at all. I actually haven't been able to get the parliamentary secretary on gender equity to speak to me about that bill. All I've received are statements on it. Uh, although when I asked the premier about it, he tells me I should be talking to his parliamentary secretary on gender equity. So that's a nice, fun little circle to be running around in.
0: One of the private members bills that did make it through, though, was Andrew Weaver's. And I believe he had another one even this week. Yes. Start so to move today through.
1: he had one more read into uh, given third reading and then granted Royal assent. Uh, the one that came through this week was the residential tenancy amendment act, which would allow tenants to break a lease if they're in a situation that is sort of dangerous to them. So dealing with issues of like domestic violence or presumably like a rental that has been neglected so badly, it's now unsafe. There would be no penalty. Like a landlord would not be able to keep your damage deposits for breaking a lease in that situation. And then the Business Corporations Amendment Act went through the week before the constituency week took place.
2: And he hasn't stopped putting forward private members' bill because he put one forward to, or the Dream Caucus anyway, to... uh Ban conversion therapy?
1: Yes. So we had that one as well. It was introduced this week. And again, like it seems like Weaver is kind of is gaining some traction on some of these bills. So I think it'll be interesting in the fall to see if the government goes forward and passes any more of them. Now, with the conversion therapy ban bill. So what Weaver's bill would do is it would make it illegal to perform conversion therapy on minors. If you're an adult and you really want to go and see a mental health professional who is going to try and help you stop being gay. Professional
0: Um, in a lot of scare quotes.
1: Yeah, although one of the individuals who was at this announcement, you know, said that when he was 24 years old and struggling with his sexuality, particularly his family's rejection of the fact that he was gay, he was seeing a psychiatrist here in Victoria who was performing conversion therapy on him, and he found it devastating. Basically, though, the government said so it would ban people from practicing this on minors, although you would still have to report, like somebody would have to report that somebody was performing conversion therapy because nobody really calls it conversion therapy. And the other thing it would do is ensure that there's no coverage for the treatment through like provincial funding or whatever. So the health ministry was quick to point out that you can't bill, like providers can't bill for conversion therapy. And if they are billing the province for conversion therapy type, practices and listing it under, you know, different treatment options that are covered that constitutes fraud and is also illegal. So the bill seems to me to be more of sort of a statement and that, and that was kind of how Weaver phrased it. Like it makes explicit the fact that trying to treat someone's sexual identity as problematic and something that needs to be cured is wrong and is not something that the province supports.
0: Yeah. And legislatures take symbolic moves all the time, even when it's not necessarily necessary. But I spoke in favor of this bill. So I'm clearly Mm -hmm. biased already on this. (laughs) Well, let's move from the bills that filled this last week. To one of the other changes in the legislature, there's now an official dress code, sort of.
1: Kind of. Maybe.
0: <laughs> there's guidelines that the acting clerk put out based on a report she'd compiled over the past couple months, I guess.
1: Two months. It was almost exactly two months ago that the Bear Arms protest took place.
0: <laughs> Is this sufficient? Are you happy?
1: Um. The, so this latest review... Like the final review kind of wasn't really all that exciting. We got preliminary pronouncements from Kate Ryan Lloyd on April Fool's Day, like immediately after sort of this, the bare arms protest took place. And it basically said, yes, women can have bare arms. They don't need to be wearing clothing with sleeves all the time. And also everybody is an adult in this building. We don't need hall monitors telling people in the hallways how to dress, which essentially were the two issues that we were pushing back against. We didn't feel that sleeveless attire was unprofessional for us to be wearing. And we didn't like the fact that the dress code, posed dress code was being arbitrarily enforced uh, by legislature staff in the hallways. So this new review spends a lot of time looking at what other jurisdictions do or have done or have discussed doing. And presented all of these different sort of options and then sort of suggested that, you know, if BC is really serious about making this modernization of dress guidelines formal, there could be an amendment to standing orders made. Kate Ryan Lloyd drafted a, you know, proposed possibility for that standing order amendment. But one of the cases has been not being overly prescriptive, like not just having a list of things that people are allowed to wear or are expected to wear in the house, which I think makes sense. Carol James said it out at the time, like we didn't have a dress code issue. There wasn't a problem with the way people were dressing in the legislature. There was a problem with the way these guidelines were being enforced.
0: Yeah, they are clearer guidelines because they're actually written down. And I think it sounded like a lot of the earlier issue is there wasn't even really clarity. And now we yeah. have differences for MLAs in the legislature, in the proper legislature, MLAs in yeah. committee and elsewhere visitors to the house and then staff as four separate categories and visitors can be as casual as you want hence your leopard skin suit today
1: that is my own personal clothing tradition for legislate the last day of session i have a leopard print jumpsuit that i absolutely love the press gallery though the journalists are actually considered under the employees who work in the legislature category so that was kind of an interesting one Because it's basically like anybody who works in the building, because there are numerous employers who are involved in that. Um, And even in the press gallery, like we don't all work for the same person. There was some suggestion that maybe the press gallery should like set its own rules for a dress code for what people are expected to wear, uh, to which I immediately suggested that we mandate that everyone wear leopard print all the time. Unfortunately, I don't think that is going to be the case.
0: Did not have a majority vote there.
1: No, no. The thing that I have been just like giggling over the whole time, though, is how so there's been some suggestion that ties for men are no longer necessary, just overall, like, uh, even for MLAs in the chamber. uh, It's not cut and dried. It's not part of the standing order. But the suggestion has kind of been that yes, there should be jackets. Yes, there should be collared shirts. But wearing a tie is you know maybe kind of a relic and a tradition to be discarded and there has been a lot of excitement on the part of men who work in the legislature over the prospect of not having to wear ties although i will point out that basically all of them are still wearing ties in the legislature so
0: but they don't want to have to wear a tie
1: yeah they so they have the option not to and like honestly if we're not in the hallway and they're not in the chamber like the guys take their ties off all the time and then just put them back on when they have to like go downstairs in the hallway or go into the chamber or whatever. So, but I just, I had to laugh and I I kind of took to social media because there was a bit of, you know, like, Oh, we still have to wear jackets and sometimes it's really hot and stuffy in the legislature. And I just, I just kind of laughed because I, I feel like, you know, women took this action and now men are going to benefit From it, and some people are just whining about the fact that, like, they're going to benefit from it. And as I said on social media, like, men may have given "quote unquote" women the vote in Canada, but at the BC legislature, it was women who freed men from the tyranny of (laughs) ties.
2: Well, I'm looking here at the the brief outline, and I'm seeing a lot of stuff about waist off, but doesn't say you can't wear shorts.
1: There was some discussion about whether the legislature is now like a uh, no pants or pants optional zone. <laughs> um, there is a running joke between Keith Baldwin and Von Palmer, who share office space over in the armory. Keith, as many people know, is a TV reporter, and TV reporters are infamous for looking very presentable and formal from the waist up. And then wearing shorts or pajama pants or just not what you would be expecting underneath the desk. And so Vaughn is is sort of well known for yelling that you know like Keith isn't wearing any pants if there happen to be visitors near his desk
2: when he's broadcasting.
1: Whatever. So uh, yeah.
2: Moving on, the charges against Mark Norman may have been dropped, but doesn't look like the Mark Norman saga is over yet as the Senate voted this week to have him come in and give testimony.
0: Yeah, a parliamentary committee shut down having any chance of bringing Mark Norman because the Liberals hold a majority and they want this story to die for some reason. And the Conservatives on the Defence Committee at the Senate voted with a couple from the independent senators group, the ISG, to call Mark Norman to testify about what happened And so it sounds like Mark Norman's going to be testifying before the Senate before it rises at the end of the, I think, mid-June, late June.
2: Yeah, as well as Chief of Defense Staff uh, General Vance and Defense Minister Sir John, who will be testifying on the 20th of June.
0: So the Senate's going to be very busy in the next month. It already is super busy with so many stories that I've had to cut on just like bills that are being wildly amended, bills that are being killed, other things that are happening.
2: Yeah, it t- turns out when you fire all your senators, it's hard to get legislation through in a timely manner as they're discovering. But one of the f- few positive benefits of the chaos that has been the attempt to de if that's a word, which I don't think it is, the uh, liberal senators in there is that some of them are now acting independently. And we actually now have the Senate wanting to hear stuff that the... Uh, government shuts down in the house of commons
0: and while the senate will get to hear from mark norman parliament is eager to hear from mark zuckerberg and cheryl sandberg from facebook but it sounds like neither of them are actually going to turn up after being compelled by the committee because when you're rich laws don't matter i guess well
2: also if you're not in canada it's harder to enforce
0: canadian laws well if you want to keep doing business here And this has led to a very weird situation where there's a lot of speculation about whether the Canadian Parliament is going to find the CEO of Facebook in contempt of Parliament. And I think I saw one column get thrown out there with someone suggesting, why don't we just ban Facebook from Canada, call their bluff? And I'd be shocked if the Liberals or another government was willing to go that far. But it's tough trying to hold these CEOs to account for the stuff that's happening on their social media platforms.
2: So Facebook didn't entirely snub them. They did send Kevin Chan, their head of public policy for Facebook Canada, to the committee, but they didn't send the people who were actually requested. So what that means going forward, hard to say, but I, I have a feeling we probably haven't seen the last of this fight, especially because the Liberals are trying to make like digital media a big thing.
0: Uh, I, I can't see them wanting to drop this. Kevin Chan was a former liberal staffer, and so it works well for the government to talk to someone some of them probably know and have worked with. But I think I'm personally more interested in not their spokesperson here, but in like the U.S. Senate's embarrassing grilling of Zuckerberg, at least giving our politicians the chance to be less embarrassing.
1: Yeah, I don't know that I would bet on that necessarily. Yeah,
0: Yeah, committees have not been going great this week. I think it was the federal committee studying online hate and radicalization where conservative MP Michael Cooper, like, attacked a Muslim who was there presenting on behalf of their community about how they viewed conservative or extreme right rhetoric fueling people like Alexandra Bisanet. And Michael Cooper decided to say comments were shameful, and he got very offended by this accusation that, I guess he's responsible for it. I think he took it very personally, which is a little telling. And then the Mm -hmm. rest of the committee members had to chide him into rolling back his comments. He didn't withdraw them all, but it was not a good moment for the Conservative Party. He actually read part of the New Zealand shooter's manifesto into the record where he's like, oh, that guy said he's uh, more influenced by the communist regime of China than Donald Trump. So it can't be the far right that's influencing him. Not a great day. No. (laughs) So maybe he won't be on the committee in the fall. Well, I guess it'll be the election in the fall. But yeah, this is going to be a long, dirty, ugly election.
2: And potentially making it even more contentious uh, will be how the media is going to be covering this election, and particularly in relation to the Liberal government's plan to provide funding for certain media groups. This is part of their bailout package, which they announced as part of the budget, and it's going entirely to legacy print media. Because apparently we need to prop up the people who are failing rather than new businesses. But
0: I think there are some smaller newspapers that are doing some innovative stuff. But the lion's share of this is clearly going to Post Media, Torstar, and Globe and Mail.
2: Yeah, but that's not why it's trouble. Although that alone would raise questions about media. But who gets to decide how that gets dispersed has become a point of controversy as... The Liberals announced earlier this week which groups they're going to be going to for this. Uh, Included in there is News Media Canada, which is basically the owners' association for the major newspapers, the Quebec Newspaper Association, the Association de la Presse Francophone, National Ethnic Press and Media Council of Canada, Canadian Association of Journalists, Federation Professionnelle des Journalistes du Québec, uh, the Fédération Nationale de Communication and most controversially, Unifor.
0: So the criticism against Unifor being there is they're biased because they're... They
2: say really, really biased things. Well, they're
0: anti-conservative because yeah. they're a union.
2: But Janderson is like temperamentally not fond of the conservatives, like actively campaigning against them, which raises like, serious conflict of interest stuff. And like, can you even be impartial when you're distributing media bailout money when you're very clearly have a massive partisan action grind
0: they all have a conflict of interest
2: yes but like th- this <laughs> yes that's true but like the other ones aren't going out there and specifically saying our stated goal is that this party does not get re-elected
0: well i mean post media has endorsed the conservatives and forced every newspaper in their docket to endorse the conservatives for the last several elections even over the voices of their own editors and staff. So I struggle. Like, I think the bigger problem, and this was kind of explored in a similar angry back and forth on this week's Canada Land, is just the bailout structure itself is fundamentally flawed.
2: Yeah, it's not good. Like but the... ha- having this there further, like, delegitimizes it.
0: I don't think so. But I don't think there was a way to legitimize it. Shannon, as a representative of a small startup digital media press it's unlikely to see much if any money maybe but hopefully what are your thoughts on this bailout program and who gets to decide where the monies go
1: i mean yeah like the optics aren't great and this it's a difficult time for the industry and so the government is like yeah okay so we'll give you money and everything will be better except taking money from the government when you're supposed to be reporting on the government just doesn't look very good. I'm kind of with Ian on the uniform thing. I think the issue with them is more that it gives the conservatives more ammunition to be like to be criticizing this and to be de- delegitimizing media and saying, you know, there's a left wing bias and they don't give us fair treatment. Because everybody who's going to be on that committee has like some kind of skin in the game, right? But yeah, the whole process has just been such a huge headache, I guess, for all involved. And even if the money was going to be well spent by the organizations that are receiving it, which I think would be debatable, given that some of those organizations are literally just trying to squeeze as much profit as they can out of legacy newspapers and then get the hell out of there. You know, like I just don't see that this goes anywhere good or that it even if the even if the money is useful, the damage to sort of the reputation of journalism and reporting, I think, will be difficult to repair in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. Although I I don't necessarily think it, it does give ammunition to the conservatives, but I don't think that's the primary reason why this is like when you have. Uh, uniform response to this criticism basically doubling down and saying no like really we really want to see Andrew Shearer not be prime minister and it's important that we're on this media panel it's hard to see that as in any way not massively biasing it and not even just as a conservative talking point just as an average citizen looking at this it's it's hard to think of a way that could have this could have played out that would have delegitimized the whole thing more
1: yeah. I mean, it's not, the process isn't good. The package wasn't great to begin with for like various reasons and it just, it really hasn't gotten any, but it's one of those things that like every time the story seems to come up about how this funding is going to work, it just gets worse. So.
0: And I think like if you're going to have this panel, which I think we've all agreed was the wrong idea and you're going to give space for the owners of the newspapers on said panel you have to also have some voice for the workers of said newspapers Ideally, on said panel. you don't panel. have either, but and so we—that's how we end up here. Yeah, we don't like it. Well, I, I think, <laughs> but also, kicking Univore off doesn't make it better.
2: It makes it a little better, but no, I, then I, you t- just have the owners of the newspapers we them on it too. It's clear. Yeah, let's yeah, get rid of the panel. <laughs> I, I think part of the problem is how the journalists got represented here, because journalists were requ- basically have a reputation requirement as part of their work, right? Like it they need to be considered impartial and trusted people who don't have a partisan axe to grind. And when their representatives as employed journalists have this partisan axe to grind, that alone raises questions whether or not they're going to be involved in giving out money to various journalistic organizations. Just how their representatives as journalistic employees be at is itself kind of damaging.
0: I mean... Then the bigger issue is that the journalists should have formed their own, not management union, but l- like nonpartisan union to represent themselves rather than just joining. Yeah, a that big, would have large, been clearly
2: better than joining a non massively or, partisan union.
1: At the same time, let's remember that like almost every other segment of our society, journalism has become less and less unionized over the years. And even in shops where you do have unions operating often they are sort of like I used to work in a newsroom where basically everybody who had been working for the organization for like a decade or more was unionized and everybody who was junior was not. And it made things really weird Hmm. um, because there were huge pay discrepancies, you know, unionized employees got a lot more and it was just like, it was really weird and awkward. So you know, like I think it's all well and fine to say like, oh, well, maybe they should have like a better union, but it's not exactly like there's a ton of union options around and unionizing is difficult. Like Mm -hmm. it's not easy to just be like, yeah, we're going to be a union now. So it's, yeah, the whole thing is just a mess. And one of the things I find really interesting, like Scott mentioned partisanship here and how important it is for journalists to be seen as trusted and nonpartisan. And I completely agree. Like partisanship is not really acceptable for journalists, and anybody who is, you know, who, who takes our profession seriously should be very concerned when any time anybody levels credible accusations of being partisan against them. But I was reading this article a few weeks back about how this notion of like nonpartisan and, and objective journalism is actually really quite new, you know, that back a century or so ago papers and journalists made no bones about their alignment with particular politicians or organizations and subscribers basically pick their paper based on their belief um, and whether it aligned with their beliefs. Now, I don't know that that necessarily you know, was a great situation, but I just find it very interesting that we talk a lot these days about how you know journalists need to be neutral and objective and There's a lot of discussion around that objectivity and, like, the assumption, the question of whether, as human beings, we can even be objective. Like, personally, I don't think that's possible. I think it's possible to report fairly and respectfully and accurately on issues, but, like, we're not robots who just, like, magically flip it and just be completely objective about various issues. We all have biases, whether they're, you know, like acknowledged and conscious or not. Um, And to me, I think it's better to be aware of those tendencies in yourself and in others, and then be able to ask questions about your reporting of issues and whether your biases are showing or interfering with your work.
0: 100%. I mean, that's why we started this podcast was to explore those partisan angles, while also questioning our own and biases. But as with anything, if it comes around and this panel decides that our little podcast deserves tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, I totally reserve the right to reject all of these previous opinions <laughs> and suck up to the government Oh te-
2: We're not even eligible. The law would have to change that <laughs> empowers this because I think you have to do primarily print journalism of well, topics well, of substance, I think was the... Fr- we're going to use remember.
0: a speech-to-text automation thing to post transcripts and we'll call that our written word even if it's like 80 percent correct and then we can get that money (laughs) shannon thank you so much for taking another evening to join us and break down everything that's been happening in bc poly where can people find you if they want to follow you on twitter
1: if you are looking for my live color commentary of question period as well as general reporting of bills and all things bc legislature you can check me out at BC Today Official. That's the work account. If you are into politics with a heaping side of feminist hot takes and pictures of my gorgeous cat Cleo, you can follow me at SoBitterSoSpeak.
2: And if people want to subscribe to BC Today, where can they go about that?
1: They can check out BritishColumbiaToday.ca, although unfortunately we got hacked this week, so our website has been down. We are hoping to have it back up in very short order. But yeah, if you go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca and find an empty page, it's because our developer is still working on getting the site back up. So just fair warning on that one.
0: Just DM Shannon then if you want the newsletter.
1: Yeah, we'll put you on the list.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, always good to chat with you guys.
0: And that has
2: been Politcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at politcoast.ca. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to subscribe and let us know what you think. Support the show and get access to our exclusive Slack channel at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Shish Potnikoff. Thanks for listening.